Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Today on the show, we are speaking with Doug Klein, who is a sampling systems engineer at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. Good to be here. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. So hi, Doug. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you guys today? Good. Um, to start things off, uh, what do you do at JPL and what is your latest project? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm a, a systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, mostly have been focused on robotic sampling systems. So currently I'm the robotic arm flight systems engineer for the Mars 2020 project, which is our next rover that's scheduled to launch in uh, about two years. Um, previously, I've spent most of my career thus far uh, supporting various roles on the Mars Science Laboratory, or MSL mission, uh, which has been operating the Curiosity rover on Mars for close to six years now. And in that role, I've mostly been focused on the sampling system, the robotic arm, and the drill and other components of the sampling system. So this is going to be a really exciting conversation today, but let's start with the basics. Earth and Mars are 150 million miles apart from each other on average, which means that any communications signal to or from a rover takes about eight minutes to arrive. So how can you decide which actions can be done autonomously? Like what can the rover decide and which require humans um, operation or human commands? Yeah. So like you said, on average, so at best it's around seven minutes and at worst it's actually over 30, uh, 30 minutes. So obviously we can't be sending every single thing manually and waiting for a response before we do the next thing, uh, we, we never get anything done. Uh, so it's really a, a pretty fine balance uh, where risk and safety are really our paramount concerns. I mean, we are operating a, a very expensive, irreplaceable international asset there. Uh, so making sure that we do that in a safe and effective manner uh, without damaging anything is really uh, key there. Uh, so you won't really find some of the levels of autonomy that you'll find in commercial robotic platforms on Earth. Um, but we do have a lot of different things that are autonomous. Uh, so things like fault protection is highly autonomous. Um, different techniques for driving, we have different levels of autonomy. So the rover can actually do its own path determination and take images as it drives and figure out the safest way to go and autonomously navigate the terrain. Uh, which gives us a little bit more flexibility in how we plan different types of drives. Sometimes we use that capability, sometimes we don't. Uh, it takes a lot longer for it to drive in that mode because it's doing all this image processing and everything. Um, there's even new things that we've put on board uh, just over the last couple of years that it didn't even launch with. Uh, one is this platform called Aegis, which is this autonomous uh, science investigation where the rover can take an image and then find features in that image that seem interesting given a variety of parameters of what, what ground operators would find interesting, and then select those features to zoom in on and take different types of observations so that when we arrive at a workspace, before we've even planned any uh, science at that workspace, the rover has already selected things that it thinks that we might be interested in so that we get kind of a head start for the next day. Um, so there are kind of little little nuggets of autonomy, but overall, the actual um, things that the rover is doing is largely planned by ground operators like myself. Awesome. So when the rover is being driven by the lab, um, what's the process for actually executing those actions? Do you plan a whole sequence and then upload it all and watch what happens? Or do you send one command at a time and wait for the response before proceeding? Yeah, so definitely the first one. Um, for the Mars rovers, we typically plan, uh, well, usually when we start, we plan every single day, and then after a period, we kind of relax it. So right now, we plan five days a week. Um, so typically, it's a one sol plan. A sol is a Martian day. It's about a half hour longer than an Earth day. Uh, on Fridays, we plan a three sol plan, so we pack a little bit more in so that us operators can still have our weekends. Uh, and that's kind of unique to surface operations. So I guess just to talk about it generically, um, if you think about other types of missions like orbiters and stuff, um, a lot of orbiters, especially at outer planets, will operate and build these sequences that cover several weeks. Uh, and the reason for that is that their one-way light time could be hours, whereas we're only on minutes. And so for them to play da plan daily can be a little bit challenging. 
And the other thing is that they know exactly where they're going to be at all times and what's going to be in view, so they can kind of, you know, thanks to physics, plan it out uh, pretty precisely. Whereas our mission is highly reactive. Basically, every single day, we're building plans and targeting uh, things that are based on the images from the previous day. Um, so we, we do this, um, call it tactical operations, is how we plan a day at a time. But that being said, we're not going into that totally blind. So we do have a strategic process uh, that's kind of our, you know, anything from a couple days in advance uh, to several months long where we're sort of mapping out from uh, images that we get from the orbiters, uh, what what we think might be interesting in the area, what routes look feasible um, to, to drive through, where we think we might want to stop, what the high-level science objectives are so that when, when we're in a particular region, we know already that the science team is interested in sampling these different types of features that they've seen, and they saw this outcrop over here that looked interesting from some of the MRO data. Um, and so, you know, we kind of have a plan, but um, but day of in the morning is really when all the nuts and bolts get figured out of what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun doing that, a lot of fun working with the science team to kind of converge on what we're actually going to do on any particular day. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so you did touch a little bit on the day-to-day -day workflow, um, but is like every day are you looking at things that are sent back, coming up with a plan, doing some analysis, and and then planning the next step? Is it is it a rapid pace like that? Yeah, um, it, it pretty much is. So um, I guess uh, you know I mentioned that we sort of have a strategic idea. So as we're going. Um, you know, we're driving along. We spend a lot of days just driving. A typical day, uh, I would say we average probably about 40 meters of driving, depending on the terrain. Uh, some areas, it's really, really tough to navigate. Uh, some areas, we're in this nice flat areas with no hazardous features that we can go. So our longest drive has been a little bit over 140 meters, but I think the 30 to 50 meters is more typical. And um, as we're driving, so Curiosity has a number of different instruments uh, on board. Some of them are uh, kind of just remote instruments that are passively monitoring things like the environment, radiation. So we're always getting information like that. Uh, we also can do targeted remote science that we do pretty much every day. So these are like our imagers, our laser spectrometer, things like that. Um, then if it's particularly interesting, we'll decide to stop, uh, park, and unstow the arm and engage in some contact science. Uh, usually we do that at least once a week because the weekend, the way that we schedule and plan three days at a time makes weekends a really good opportunity to get a, a big long drive in as well as some contact signs. Um, and then if it's particularly juicy, we'll, we'll go ahead and sample. And so far we've collected uh, 15 samples uh, from rocks and we've done three scooping campaigns in some of the sand dunes that we've passed. Um, so to go a little bit more detail about what the day-to-day -day sort of looks like, um, you can kind of split operations into two main teams, the downlink team and the uplink team. Where the downlink team is responsible for, um, on the engineering side, assessing the data from the previous day, making sure that the rover did what it was supposed to do, or in some scenarios, figure out why it didn't complete what we wanted it to do. Uh, and then communicating that information in a succinct way for the uplink team so that they can take that and then figure out what we want to do, as well as preparing different... Um, planning products uh, such as current rover conditions, uh, image meshes that will drive over, things like that. And then the uplink team takes that information uh, and has a nice chat with the science team who's also looking at that information. And so the beginning of the day for the uplink team is really a kind of a set of negotiations of the scientists trying to converge on what they want to do, where they want to drive, you know, what particular features on the workspace in front of us seem interesting to investigate. And then iterating with the engineering team to figure out, is that actually feasible? Uh, so one of my jobs I've performed is the job of a rover planner, uh, who are the, uh, the team of engineers that are staffed every day. There's at least two of us on shift every day uh, that do all of the planning and sequencing for all of the motion. So all of the driving, any contact science operations, any sampling operations, the rover planner sequence and so a lot of that early part of the day is kind of a, a little back and forth between the science team saying, hey, we want to do these 10 things. And the rover planner is saying, well, that's asking a lot or, you know, we think we can get that done or, you know, let's prioritize it and see how much we can actually fit into a day. Uh, and then the other part of what we actually can do in a day 
has to do with the power that we have available on the rover as well as how much data volume we can get down to make sure that we have enough information to plan the following day. Um, so that's kind of the beginning of the day. And hopefully, you know, within an hour or so, we've sort of all converged on a pretty, pretty decent skeleton of what we think that we're going to accomplish that day. And then it gets into the more detailed work of actually sequencing it, planning out the drives, making sure it's safe, um, figuring out how we're going to plan it in a safe way, um, making sure our power modeling, our timing modeling, our data volume modeling, all of that stuff is accurate so that we're going to be able to accomplish everything. Um, and so those details will usually take a couple of hours to convert. We have kind of the whole day is a series of meetings that are these checkpoints um, to make sure that we're keeping on track because at the end of the day, we need to make our uplink. Um, so sometimes it's uh, about nine or 10 hours between when we get the information to start the day to when we actually have to uplink it in order to make it tomorrow's for the rover to execute it the next day. Um, other times, depending on the phasing, we can have a little bit more time, but generically we try and we try and keep our one saw plans to about eight hours and our Friday three saw plans we let go to nine hours. Um, so about halfway through the day, we, we should have a, a pretty well sequenced um, structure for what we want to send. And then the second half of the day is really just a series of safety checks uh, to make sure that we didn't violate any conditions and that what we built is going to execute the way that we planned. So it's a lot of simulation and automated rule checkings and uh, walkthroughs of sequences with different pairs of eyes and stuff just to make sure that we're really comfortable with what we're doing uh, before we so, actually bundle everything together and at the end of the day send it to the rover. So does the um, does the geometry between Earth and Mars factor into when your deadline falls? Because Earth's rotation plus where they are relative to each other. Yeah, changes. it does. So it's, it's really interesting working on these missions. Um, when we first land, we actually work on Mars time. And so that means that your shift start time is going to shift about, you know, 40 minutes every single day, which is a little bit hard to keep up with, which is why we typically only do that for a few months before we try and roll back onto working on Earth time because we all live on Earth. Um, and so the way we compensate for that is this kind of rotating schedule where our default start time is 8 o'clock. And so that means that our default end time is about 5 o'clock, which is a, a normal working time for most humans. Um, but that works on, I think it's about a six-week schedule um, where those start times will start to shift later and later each day as we're getting downlink passes a little bit later. Uh, and we'll go all the way until starting at 1130. Um, so sometimes you'll have like a Friday shift where you start just before noon and then you're you know, there until 7 or 8 p.m. or something. Um, and then we'll get to a point where the downlink information is just coming in too late for us to really be able to turn around a pass and let people go home at a reasonable time. So then we'll go into what we call restricted planning, where we'll actually plan every other day um, for about two weeks. And um, so there we're able to do a little bit more um, in those plans because we have twice as much time. But you really only have the information from the first saw to plan each day. So the stuff that goes in the second saw is more going to be um, targeted remote sciencing thing and things like that, but it's really hard to plan a drive if you haven't gotten the information from the previous drive down. Um, and then after that, we'll go back into regular planning, but we'll have these really early shifts. So we'll start as early as 6 a.m. Um, and then that'll last a week or so, and the, that'll slowly slide. And so the early shifts are really driven by our uplinks will need to happen you know, by 3 p.m. in the afternoon or something like that. Um, and then that'll slide up over the week, and then we'll be back at our 8 o'clock normal planning for another three weeks or so, and then start over again. So that's kind of a fun aspect to it. We all sort of live these crazy lives together where our schedules rotate around. So uh, you've worked extensively with rover sample analysis and mission planning with the Mars Science Laboratory. Uh, what is the process for deciding what to investigate? Is it purely uh, the PIs driven of the target, or what are some of those considerations you have to be that you mentioned earlier between what they want versus what you can do. Yeah, so MSL is kind of a, an interesting project in that each instrument has its own PI. So we have something like 12 PIs and then a project scientist that tries to kind of converge on all that. But really, and then the whole project, uh, the science team is, is hundreds of engineers throughout the world at different universities and research institutions and stuff. Um, so getting that to all converge is, is a pretty impressive challenge. Uh, and I think our project scientist does a really good job of that. But um, 
they sort of lay out kind of strategically what their what their goals are for the mission and what types of uh experiments they think that they want to conduct in any particular area and really it's all about kind of understanding uh on the sampling side the composition of these rocks um both chemically and minerally uh and sort of working out what happened to Mars because we know now that it was once this wetter uh environment that might have been somewhat earth-like and now it's just this this complete desert um and that's part of our location as well is that we landed inside Gale Crater and we're climbing Mount Sharp which is thousands of feet high and as we climb we get to see a different stratigraphic layer which tells us a little bit about a different time period in Mars's history to try and piece together that puzzle um, so a lot of the sampling is just driven by um, stratigraphy and whether we've seen this before. Um, sometimes there's specific features that they want to compare and contrast. We'll see uh, features in some areas where there's rocks that seem unperturbed and other ones that seem like they've been kind of stained and affected in the past by different liquid flows or something. So we'll try and uh, compare and contrast those things. Um, but ultimately, we, we usually have a pretty good idea of what we're looking for Um and kind of know ahead of time that we're in this area and we're looking for, you know, these types of features to sample. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, it's definitely, it sounds difficult when you have that many uh, PIs and scientists all working on basically one, uh, one laboratory. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, Kiros has taken 15 samples how are those samples analyzed on board the rover, and what kind of data do you guys get back? Yeah, so um, our drill, I guess I'll go through the process of kind of how we collect the samples and then and then what the instruments do with them. Um, so our drill is located at the end of about a two-meter-long robotic arm. Uh, it has five degrees of freedom, uh, so it's fairly robust. Um, and it's a, it's a rotary percussive drill, so it's a lot more like a jackhammer or a masonry drill with a chisel bit on it than it is kind of like a wood drill that a lot of people would have at home. And it drills by basically uh, pulverizing the rock into a very fine powder and augering that material up through the stem of its drill. Um, and once it has that, uh, the powder inside of the drill bit, We'll transfer that over to this mechanism that we call Chimera, uh, which is kind of our multi-headed. It has a scoop and a sieve and a portioning device, and it, it helps us create these uh, samples for the deliveries. And so what the, uh, so what the instruments actually want is these really tiny samples, about 50 milligrams or so, uh, so like half the size of a baby aspirin pill, that's been sieved down to 150 microns. So we have a sieve in there um, to get the real fine powder. And once we've created this uh, sample, this portion, it's still at the end of the robotic arm, so the robotic arm will bring it over the uh, deck of the rover, and each of the two instruments that accept sample have inlet covers on the deck that'll open up, we'll drop off a little sample in there, and then from there the instruments take it. Uh, we have two instruments on board. One is SAM, Sample Analysis at Mars, and the other is Chemin, which is uh, Chemistry and Mineralogy. And those instruments do different types of experiments. Uh, Chemin is a, I think it's an x-ray um, instrument, and so we'll shine x-rays and look at the different um, mineralogy that is um, present in each of these different samples. And SAM is kind of a big oven, uh, so SAM will do uh, basically heat up the samples and look at what sort of volatiles are coming off at different temperatures and do gas chromatography in that way um, to really understand in pretty fine detail uh, what, what these samples are made of. And that's kind of a unique thing about this mission, as opposed to previous missions, is, you know, this is our third generation of rovers on Mars, and what we always say is that previous ones have kind of been field geologists, where they could, you know, look at different types of rocks under a microscope, uh, but we actually brought the entire geologist laboratory with us to Mars so that we can do these scientific experiments there. Um, and so then all that gets packed into data packets um, and sent back to Earth so that Earth scientists can look at the results of these different experiments that we've done and draw their conclusions. TJ? I'll ask the next question, and that's, uh, I wanna know, uh, TJ, if you're talking, you're muted. Um, but I wanna know, how do you know if the data that you get back is contaminated or biased or skewed in any way? Um, because the whole laboratory is on Mars and you just basically get back the results. So is there any 
double checking that you can do? Yeah, so as you can imagine, that's actually a, a pretty key concern when we're designing these systems. And I've even talked to some of the scientists that have said that it's been a challenge because they present these findings to a community of terrestrial geologists where they're taking thousands of data points to make their conclusions. And, you know, we're so limited in what we can do that oftentimes, you know, they, they find that we need to be really careful about how we do these data collections to be able to, you know, make it hold up to the type of stuff that we're doing on Earth. And luckily now with Curiosity, the resolutions and stuff that we get from this data are, are comparable to the types of things that we can do on Earth. Um, but we have a few different techniques for dealing with that. One is uh, instrument calibration. So all of the instruments have different types of calibration on board. Um, things on the deck of the rover that we can target to make sure that they're still, uh, that the sensors are still functioning properly. And so usually on some reoccurring schedule every month or two or something, we'll do different types of calibrations with different instruments just to make sure everything is still operating uh, properly. The other thing is comparing data from different, uh, different sources, um, so different instruments. So we have a, a complementary suite of instruments that all sort of look at different aspects, but we can compare that data and make sure that one of them isn't finding some odd outlier that, that would have been strange for the other ones to not see. Um, so there's kind of a check there. And we have a good idea of sort of what we expect. Obviously, we're learning new things, um, but, you know, we, we, within some expected family of, of things. And then the last thing is that we actually have uh, five organic check material samples on board. And so these are actually mounted on the front of the rover. And they're these canister, canisters that have kind of a, a, um, a foil covering over top of them that we can actually drill into collect a sample and run it through our entire sampling system and deliver them to the instruments. And these are, you know, another calibration technique. Um, and we know exactly what these are made of. We brought them ourselves. Um, so there's that ability. We haven't actually used those yet um, because we haven't really felt like we've needed to and all the other calibrations have made sense. Uh, but if we were to drill something that, you know, blew us away that we were just not expecting at all, uh, then that would probably be one of the next things that we would do is say, you know, what, before we get too excited about this, let's just run one of these organic check materials through our sampling system and make sure that everything's still uh, still working pretty well. So, yeah, there's a, there's a whole, uh, a lot of thought goes into that sort of thing of how do we make sure that our conclusions are accurate. So the MSL has a drill on board for sample collection, as we've talked about, um, and you mentioned that it's a percussion-type drill. What are some other special engineering um, design choices that make it different from an earth-based drill? Yeah, so it's um it's a pretty interesting piece of hardware. So the percussion mechanism is actually driven by by a voice coil, which is similar to uh, like how speakers fundamentally work. Um, so it's just this electromagnetic hammer drill, basically. Um, it has uh it's four different mechanisms total. So there's the percussion mechanism. Uh, there's the rotate mechanism, which is actually mostly intended to auger the material, the powder in the hole. Um, up through the drill flutes around the bit into the uh, drill bit assembly. Um, then there's the feed mechanism that's responsible for linearly moving the drill uh, into and out of the rock. And so our, our full depth drill is about six and a half centimeters. Our drill holes are similar to the size of your index finger. Um, and so when we go to drill, we plant the, the robotic arm on the ground uh, with two stabilizers that the drill has. So it has these two posts and we'll preload the rock with 300 newtons to get the uh, whole arm just firmly fixed on the ground so that as we're percussing, we're not sliding around and walking in the bit. And then all of the linear motion is done with the speed mechanism. And then we also have a chuck mechanism, uh, which can actually perform drill bit exchanges. So we have two spare bits on the rover uh, that are mounted kind of on the front of the deck as well. Uh, and again, these we haven't had to use, but if we ever thought that the bit was had dulled over time, or we get ourselves in a pretty nasty situation where you're drilling and you could imagine as you're Percussing into the ground, your rover slips a little bit and, you know, we'll fault out because we have four sensors to make sure that we're not overloading the arm or anything. Um, but there's some scenarios where it could be really difficult to then extract the drill. And in those scenarios, we can uh, disengage the chuck, drop the drill bit, and leave it in the hole and grab a new one and continue the sampling mission. Um, so that's just one area of kind of robustness that we've built into the system uh, to be able to deal with some of the challenges of drilling on Mars. We've actually seen some videos that you've put out talking about the specific challenges uh, the drill has experienced. Uh, how has been troubleshooting those issues gone? Uh, we have a full-on MSL mock-up or engineering model on Earth at JPL. How does that play into that process? 
Yeah, so we've actually had uh, a handful of challenges over the last almost four years or so um, with the drill um, related to both the percussion mechanism as well as the feed mechanism uh, and have had to come up with some pretty pretty clever workarounds to be able to continue to operate the drill. Um, so um, generically, when, when things go wrong on Mars, which you know we'd like to think doesn't happen, but unfortunately we do have these anomalies occasionally, really the first thing that we think about is what's the current configuration of the vehicle and is it safe? And that's kind of a hard, hard thing to shift yourself because naturally you want to jump to what happened what went wrong. Um, but usually our first concern is, you know, is this something that, is there some time critical aspect here? Are instruments con like exposed to contamination right now? Or is this something that we can sit and think about and, you know, take the time with? Um, and then after that happens, we go, um, we start thinking about what actually went wrong and what the cause of this anomaly was. And that's kind of where our engineering model on Earth comes into play. Um, so obviously, you know, as, as you might imagine, it would be a lot easier if we could just inspect the vehicle, take it apart, see what happened. Um, but obviously it's on Mars and that's not really the case. So we have to get a little bit more creative than that and try and understand what actually happened in a lot of these scenarios. Uh, and usually the first step is just listing everything that you can imagine could possibly go wrong. Uh, so we'll come up with a big list, uh, usually categorize it, try and think which ones are likely, which ones aren't likely. And then go through that list and figure out what can we do to actually prove or debunk any of these theories to try and narrow this down. Um, and one of the key things is what sort of tests can we do on Earth? So we do have a full-scale engineering model of Curiosity. It's just like the one on Mars. A um, couple of minor exceptions. It doesn't actually have a radioisotope thermal electric generator on it. And that makes it safe for me to go in and test every day. Um, it also has some differences that have to do with Earth gravity versus Mars gravity, but effectively it's identical. Um, and so the things that we'll try and do with that is, uh, can we recreate this problem? Uh, sometimes these problems are things like flight software bugs or, you know, race conditions that we've hit. Um, and those types of things are often repeatable and we can figure out ways to try and recreate it to understand uh, how we can work around it. And then, um, yeah, the second category of things that we do with that test rover is, is develop these workarounds of, you know, maybe we can't figure out what's wrong with this problem, or maybe we did figure it out, but we can't do anything about it because the hardware is the hardware and it's already there. Um, so how can we still come up with uh, ways to still operate the vehicle? Um, so we still, I mean, we're five and a half years into the mission and that test rover is being used almost every day. Um, to try and understand various different problems or improve how our efficiency is in operating this uh, vehicle or just understand things a little bit uh, better. Yeah, it definitely seems like an interesting challenge, you know, fixing something that's broken that you can't see or touch. Uh, now, is there anything else on the drill specifically that uh, has been giving you issues or like a specific design choice that now six years later, uh, like if that could be, could have been tweaked uh, would have avoided some of the challenges you guys have run into? Um, yeah, so I can talk a little bit about kind of two of the key issues that we've had with the drill. I think in both scenarios, they would have been very hard to predict, and they still sort of outlived their you know two-year mission lifetime, so I think we're pretty pleased with them. And, and they've degraded in a way that we've been able to sort of manage that degradation a little bit. Um, but there have been kind of design changes that we've fed into the future rover, um, to sort of try and avoid some of these uh, things that have been problematic, or at least make it a little bit easier to to inspect um, or understand what, what goes wrong when these things happen. And some of those are even like operational suggestions. Um, like one, one thing that we're going to try and do on the next rover is just more regularly do these mechanism checkouts where we do small motions in the mechanism and collect uh, data at the highest rate possible. Um, we don't always collect our highest rate data just for data volume concerns. We have a lot of science data that we want to get down, but we can command it to get a uh, much higher data rate. And so we we're planning on more regularly doing those types of activities in the future to try and understand and be able to, when things do go wrong, compare against this rich baseline set of data that we've collected uh, and try and detect these things a little bit earlier. Um, but the two main problems that we've had, um, Around, so let's see, right now we're on Sol, I'll, I'll talk in forms of Sol's Martian days. It's somewhere around Sol 2050-ish right now, 2040 maybe. And so on Sol 9-11, um, 
some of these saws are kind of embedded in my brain. Um, we had our first major drill issue, which was an electrical short in that percussion mechanism in that voice coil. Uh, and that was sort of an intermittent problem where we'd short out. Um, and really the concern there, well, if we're shorting too much, then the percussion mechanism isn't going to be able to perform the way it's designed, and we won't get enough energy to actually impact from the ground. Um, but there's also downstream electrical short uh, issues of you know whether or not we're actually sourcing current into different parts of the rover that shouldn't have that current. Uh, there's you know, potential to blow fuses and things like that. And so we've designed fault protection to avoid uh, any of those hardware damage um, electrical issues. And so the behavior is that when we see these electrical shorts, uh, the rover will detect it and just stop its operation, uh, which keeps the rover safe. Unfortunately, it could mean that we don't get a sample. Um, and so we've, we've done a handful of things to sort of deal with that problem. Um, one has been, uh, initially that fault protection was sort of at a hairline trip. Uh, if we saw anything unusual, we fault out. We've then sort of raised that to a safer value so that we can kind of tolerate some of these lower magnitude shorts and still continue to drill. Uh, we've also redesigned a lot of our drilling sequences to make them tolerant of this and actually, um, provide the ability for us to continue after we fault it out, uh, in a hole for one of these drillings. And then the other thing that we started developing that was a, a big part of my last few years was starting to think about what non-percussive drilling might look like. Um, so is this, you know, rotary percussive drill capable of collecting samples without percussion at all uh, in the end game that eventually this mechanism could fail? And, you know, thankfully it hasn't yet and we are tracking it very carefully and we still do see these shorts occasionally, um, but we are still able to operate the percussion mechanism. And... So that non-percussive drilling technique took a long time to develop. Um, it's, you know, the bit is not really designed to cut. It's meant to pulverize and uh, chisel away at material and create a powder. Uh, and it is, non-percussive drilling is going to be limited to some of the softer materials, uh, but we think that it is kind of a viable workaround and probably will give us access to some uh, things that we want to sample. And then more recently, um, the feed mechanism has been giving us problems. Um, so this is the linear mechanism that moves the drill into and out of the rock. And about, uh, let's see, a little bit over a year ago or so, yeah, about 15 months ago, um, we attempted to drill and the feed mechanism did not move at all when commanded. Uh, so this is a big surprise to us. And it was actually the first time that we had tried uh, non-percussive drilling on Mars. So a little bit disappointing for me that spent you know, a year and a half building that capability. We finally decided to demonstrate it on Mars and see how well it would work. And we didn't even get to the non-percussive part of it. Um, but, um, yeah, so the speed mechanism um, stalled. We spent about six months trying to understand what actually happened, doing various different diagnostics in on our Earth test rover. Uh, thing, we ran things on flight to try and look at this signature, we basically isolated it to the input stage of the motor, and we think that it's probably some kind of misalignment uh, between these two brake plates that uh, nominally keep the brake uh, closed so that we don't get any motion, and our spring-loaded close, and then we retract them when we want to move, and that allows the brake to move. Um, so we've been able to isolate it. We still have a handful of theories about what could be wrong. Ultimately, we kind of just assess the impact of any of the remaining theories and try and figure out what our workarounds can be. And so for six months, we, we spent a lot of time trying to understand this and see if, you know, if there was a way that we could still drill with our, our standard drilling techniques um, without uh, needing to totally redesign how we drill and maybe just tweak a few things about how we run that particular motor. Um, but over that six-month period, the motor sort of continued to degrade uh, until the point that we had to start thinking how how can we still drill without the speed mechanism? And so then the next big challenge is that um, I mentioned that we have these two stabilizers that we plant on the ground uh, to stabilize the drill during drilling operations. And so the drill bit nominally is about uh, four centimeters or so behind those stabilizers. So it can't even reach the surface um, without that feed mechanism being able to extend it. And so with this sort of faulty feed mechanism, we spent... Uh, good part of the summer actually just figuring out how to extend that feed mechanism all the way so that we could then develop our next workaround, which would be a way to 
drill without using the feed mechanism at all, without relying on the stabilizers to keep us planted on the ground. Yeah, and so throughout those challenges, how do you uh, go from having this problem of this feature's not working, this component's not working, how do you determine that, and then how do you get to finding the solution? Were there a dozen or so potential solutions and ideas that you rank and test, or is there usually one or only one or two options? It can vary um, quite a bit, but um, yeah, typically it's just you know back to the drawing board of what works and what doesn't work, and how can we replace the functionality of what doesn't work with what does work. And so, with the case of the feed. You know, the obvious solution was you still have a robotic arm with five degrees of freedom, and that can push the drill into the ground. Um, so we decided to try and use the arm to drill instead of using that feed mechanism. And part of uh, kind of the, the trade space analysis phase of this, when we're originally thinking of these ideas, there's a, an element of timeliness as well, because, you know, every day that we don't have this capability is a day that the science team can't collect samples. And we're still driving the rover and, you know, we can still do quite a bit without the sampling system. Um, but there was a real, real amount of uh, drive to really want to be able to sample again. And so, you know, in a perfect wheel of world, you would lay out, you know, a dozen different ideas and do a, a comprehensive trade space analysis and try and figure out what the best way to approach this is. Um, but because of some of the time pressures, we kind of just come up with, with the best view that seem obvious at first and a couple of weeks trying them out, maybe do a test with one or two of them, uh, and then sort of just quickly converge on something that we think has the best chance of working so that we can start designing that, developing it, testing it, working out the algorithms, and getting it ready for flight as quickly as possible. And so that is really what we did uh, most of the fall and winter. Um, basically started off early with kind of just algorithm designs of how do we, how do we replace this uh, linear feed mechanism with a five degree of freedom arm and that's pretty challenging uh, part of that is that the arm is a little bit imprecise it doesn't have perfect accuracy you have to deal with these really long limbs that are deflecting as they're being loaded and changing temperatures um, the gearing has some amount of slop in it so you have to deal with those types of problems and you only have five degrees of freedom so you don't have perfect cartesian control over the uh the actual drill as you're trying to move into the ground so they were a lot of robotic arm uh, control aspects that were challenging. The other challenge uh, is that some of the software on the drill um, did things for us like maintaining a constant um, load on the drill bit as we're drilling by adjusting that feed mechanism rate. Um, and those are all things that we had to now do at a much higher level. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, iterations of different types of uh, sequence algorithms that can actually you know, start to accomplish some of these uh, challenging tasks and figure out how we're going to work around it. And, you know, ultimately we had eventually converged on something that we thought was going to work. And so then we enter sort of a verification and validation uh, part of our testing where we just test every possible logic path through the sequence and try it out in a spectrum of different types of rocks and different arm orientations and really make sure that what we're doing is safe for every sort of configuration uh, we did a couple of tests on Mars throughout this process as well, where we loaded the arm against the surface of the rock and preloaded it and did some side load tests to see how that response was and to make sure that uh, some of the feedback we're getting from the force sensor in the arm on Mars is comparable to what we're testing with on Earth, which it should be, but we wanted to check because, you know, it's been a while. Um, and ultimately, we finally got to the point uh, just, I guess, about two months ago now where we where we tested that out on Mars for the first time. Uh, so that was pretty exciting. We drilled uh, two test holes to try and demonstrate uh, this behavior. And they were, they were very, they worked exactly how we wanted. Um, the only challenge is that we developed this behavior to be uh, without using the percussion mechanism. And so they didn't actually achieve enough depth for us to collect the sample. We need to get about two centimeters deep in order to start ingesting material into the drill. Um, so that wasn't terribly surprising. We knew without percussion that we would be a little bit limited in the types of materials we did, we'd be able to drill. And the reason that we chose to, to pursue non-percussive uh, drilling with this new technique first over percussion was really just to speed up our schedule and try and have a capability available as quickly as possible. And it was a little bit of a simpler problem without introducing percussion. Um, so since that two months, we've been 
then iterating on this even more to introduce percussion back into the capability. And we're hoping over the next uh, couple of weeks or so, we'll be trying that out on Mars. And it's looking pretty promising that we'll be back to having a, a sampling system for the vehicle. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. And uh, given this whole uh, process you've been working through with Curiosity's robotic arm, it seems natural that um, you're now working as the robotic arm flight system engineer for Mars 2020. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the differences are between Curiosity and Mars 2020 are and how these experiences kind of flow in and inform your the next rover? Like how, how does that yeah, how does that work? I mean, it's it's been a pretty awesome transition. The team on Mars 2020, I mean, nowhere else, you get these people that have been driving rovers on Mars for 20 years now. Like, There's a wealth of experience, and even me just being able to come in with all of my uh, sampling experience from MSL and bring that over to Mars 2020 has been incredibly valuable. Um, so it's, it's really great working with people that have done the operation side of it, have designed these things before, and, and are feeding that all into... Uh, the learning process. And so Mars 2020 is is very similar to MSL in some ways, but it does have some some key differences. Um, so it's going to look very similar. It's you know about the same size, reusing a lot of the structural components and everything. And that's just a technique for us to try and drive down the cost a little bit. It's just to use a lot of the same platform. A lot of the software is, is reusable as well. Um, the instrument suite on Mars 2020 is totally new. Um, some of those instruments are kind of a natural evolution of the MSL instruments. Uh, like SuperCam is going to be Mars 2020's laser spectrometer. That's that's a uh, an upgrade from MSL's Chem Camera, um, which did similar things. Other instruments are totally new for 2020. Um, we have RIMFAX, which is going to be, I think, provided by Norway. Uh, is a ground-penetrating radar. Uh, there's MOXIE, which is an experiment, a, basically a technology demonstration to produce oxygen from atmospheric carbon dioxide on Mars. So that's actually looking forward to learning a little bit more about how we'll deal with getting humans on Mars. Um, so some of the instruments are totally new. And then the other main uh, differences is the sampling system is totally redesigned. Uh, and so Mars 2020 is actually the first of a sort of a trilogy of missions uh, where it wants to collect uh, not powder samples, but core samples, which are a little bit more interesting because you can really separate out the different uh, stratigraphic layers of the rocks as opposed to just getting this mixed up powder sample. And then they want to deposit those core samples on the surface and later have follow-on missions that return those samples to Earth to be able to be analyzed in Earth-based laboratories that are going to be you know, much, much higher fidelity than the types of things um, that we can do on Mars and, and expose these samples to a larger variety of different types of experiments. Um, so that sampling system and the uh, caching system for how to handle that is is a complete redesign. Uh, so it's been exciting to work, you know, on the sampling part where there's a lot of a lot of heritage, but also a lot of new stuff going on on Mars 2020. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to uh, that mission. Although they had a little uh, incident with the heat shield recently, but they say that they'll have a new one ready and it shouldn't be delayed. So. Uh, that would be a nice, nice, I still remember the entry, descent, and landing of Curiosity, which is now six years ago, of uh, like being at my computer and like doing a video call with my friends and we're all watching it uh, re-enter. Definitely a, a, a fun time. It'll be good to see, uh, see that again. Yeah, and we'll have Insight coming up even before that, uh, landing sometime around Thanksgiving, I think. Um, yes. Yeah, entry, and descent, and landing is one of the most exciting features of any mission anywhere, I think. Uh, definitely very challenging, but also one of those things that's it's great because it gets a lot of public attention and inspires people. You know, I, I remember being in college watching uh, MSL's Entry, Descent, and Landing. That was pretty inspiring to me. Um, so it's, it's great that those types of things draw a lot of, a lot of attention from the greater community. Yeah, and so you just mentioned Insight. Uh, we talked with an, en an engineer on that project, uh, Troy Hudson, uh, who worked on HP Cubed, which is another form of drill, uh, but it's a completely different design. Uh, and they're trying to use something called a mole, uh, which basically a autonomous metal worm that's trying to go down five meters into the Martian surface, um, which is, again, a completely different mechanism to what Curiosity and MSL will have. So um, 
in your opinion, what is the kind of the future and evolution of Mars drilling and interplanetary drilling? What do you think are some of the new changes, new features that would be nice to have? And what kind of different styles uh, we might see with different missions or bigger missions in the future? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really been driven about, you know, where the technology's been and what the objectives are. Uh, so Insight's drill is, is really cool. Uh, they're expecting to go a few meters deep with it. And their, their objective is not really even to collect a sample, but just to embed this temperature probe uh, deep below the surface of Mars so that they can start to understand what, what sort of uh, subsurface temperatures are on Mars. Um, so for them, you know, they don't really care what they're doing to the rock and soil as they're drilling. They just want to get down there. And that's kind of why their drill has developed the way it has. Um, MSL drill was kind of a, a compromise between what we thought we could, we could do reliably and robustly and what the science goals are. Uh, so the first, you know, question to ask is why even bother drilling on other surfaces? Um, and really for Mars in particular, the, the surface is so irradiated from the exposure it's had over thousands of years that it's not really entirely representative of the mineral and chemical uh, composition of, uh, of the Martian geology. And so accessing that subsurface material is really key to getting a complete story of the geological history on Mars. And so for MSL's objectives, it was just, you know, breaking that centimeter level crust and getting powder from below that was enough to really start to understand that. Um, as I said, Mars 2020 is taking it a step further and trying to preserve the core um, so that they can analyze each of those six or seven or centimeters individually and um, start to understand a little bit more about uh, how these materials might have formed in the past. Um, uh, European Space Agency's ExoMars has a totally different approach. Uh, they have a two-meter core design. It's this huge thing on the front of it. Um, it's a really cool design, and they're trying to get a lot deeper than anyone has before um, and collect cores as well. Um, and it really just depends on, you know, what sort of, how many samples you're trying to collect, how long you want this to last, how complicated you're, allowing your mechanisms to become and the more complicated they get the reliability tends to suffer a little bit um, so it'll be pretty exciting to see some of these different things and then the other uh, big big thing out there is outside of Mars uh, sampling techniques get even wilder uh, we've had some asteroid sampling missions uh, JPL is starting to work on Europa lander which has to sample and do you know we have a very poor idea of what the ice on on Europa even looks like? Is it going to be concrete? Is it going to represent some sort of you know, loosely consolidated, sandy, slushy, icy thing? Is it going to be you know, hard as plastic? And so they're looking at things like maybe like ice saws, circular saws that can just kind of create a, a trough of powder for them to sample at. Um, so I think it's really going in a whole lot of directions. And I think it's really just driven by what are your science goals? Uh, what do you think the material is going to be like? And how are your instruments going to deal with that sample? Do they want a powder so that they can do, you know, coarse spectrometry through it? Or do they want to be able to retain the cores to be able to see these different layers and stuff? Um, and then what sort of mass and power can you put into these? The sampling systems are, are some of the more massive and power-hungry parts of the component. And as, as you guys know, you know, those are the expensive, challenging parts of the mission and, you know, factor into your launch costs and everything. Um, but building reliable sampling systems takes a lot of aluminum and a lot of steel, and these motors are really powerful if they're going to really cut through the surface and draw a lot of power away from other functions in the vehicle. So it's really becomes just kind of what balance does any particular mission want to have um, with sampling versus other, other things of interest going on in that location. So you mentioned that Mars 2020 um, is kind of an evolution from MSL. Um, and my question for you is personally, um, how much of it is dealing with um, heritage and things you've already built up and just kind of going with what you know? And how much do you wish you could have changed? Like, what's your dream rover? And is it a lot different than what you've got? Um, I wouldn't say so. I'm actually pretty happy. I think that the, the changes to the sampling system are exciting. I mean, it's important to keep it fresh and learn new things, right? We don't want to just keep sending the same thing to different spots on Mars, even though there is a lot of value in that. And to some extent, you know, some of the things that we're sending are pretty similar, like the weather stations that we've been including on everything we've landed on Mars. We now have you know, 30 years of history of the weather at different points on Mars' surface. Um, 
but you know it's important to keep innovating and keep trying new stuff um and even the stuff that's heritage on 2020 as we design it it's it's really important to not look at it as heritage and make sure that you know you really understand what what's going on here and you know make any changes that need to be made and Sometimes it comes down to, you know, a cost thing of is the, is the problem big enough that it's worth fixing or is it something that we can work with? Um, but in many areas, uh, large and small, we have, we have started to kind of redesign how things work a little bit. And so calling it a heritage mission is, it's a, it's a fine line between how much is actually heritage and how much is new. And, you know, there's even a lot of small stuff like, you know, countless software fixes and things like that, um, that trickle into it. Um, but for me, I mean, the exciting stuff, I like surface robotics and sampling missions are really excited. Um, the type of stuff that I think in the future will be really exciting will really be other, other, um, planetary bodies, some of these icy moons like Enceladus, Europa, um, comets and asteroids, things like that, I think will provide, uh, some interesting challenges where we'll really have to not only reconsider our sampling strategies, but I think mobility systems will be pretty interesting on, on a lot of these challenges that we have for us in the future as well, of how we can traverse some of these more challenging terrains. Yeah, it's good to be excited to see more of these rovers, not only on Mars, but hopefully on other uh, planetary bodies. And uh, we've talked about Europa Clipper and a Europa Lander in the past, and there's definitely some really interesting mysteries that'd be good to get some data on. And you know, for a lot of those, you have to be on the surface doing science. Um, so it's definitely really exciting that someday soon, uh, within the next 10 years, uh, something like that will be uh, farther out in the solar system than uh, before, ever before. Yeah, it's exciting I... to see what we have uh, ahead of us. I think it's a, a pretty good time to be getting into the industry. And there's a lot of pretty interesting challenges out there. And then the other element is paving the way for humans to Mars. And so a lot of the, the instruments on Mars 2020 and even on MSL looking at like radiation environment and stuff is really uh, starting to understand the environment uh, in a way that we can start figuring out how to uh, expand, expand crude exploration throughout the solar system. Awesome. Rovers, rovers are so cool. cool. <laughs> yes, I, I think rovers. so. <laughs> I'm waiting, I'm waiting for, for the day the when there will be like the CubeSat equivalent, but for rovers on something like the moon. Yeah, that's what I'm cool. for. There's been some cool concept studies out there of you know fleets of small little rovers and things like that. Um, Mars 2020 is potentially going to have a helicopter on it, which would be pretty awesome as well. Um, Can you talk about that anymore? That sounds cool. I haven't heard that part. Just because I don't really know a ton about it, I don't really work okay. on it. Um, I know that you know it's been kind of up in the air no pun intended, um, for a while. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get some direction pretty soon about whether that's going to be included or not. But, you know, people at JPL are, are working it and developing it. Um, so it'd be pretty interesting. I, I learned recently that uh, the Sojourner rover on Pathfinder mission was not, there wasn't actually originally going to be a rover on that. And it was kind of a a tech demo that some of the engineers said, Hey, I think we can put a rover on this and I think we can fit it in the budget and we can fit it in, you know, mass and power allocations and we should really try it and put in a pretty impressive pitch and got it on there. And that has changed the last 20 years of Martian exploration entirely. You know, that Sojourner rover has now been the model for how we explore planetary surfaces. Um, so when you think about helicopter, it's like, we don't, we don't know what it will do for us or not, but, who knows, you know, it could be totally revolutionizing. Um, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens with it. For sure. We can be talking about Mars rovers nonstop for a very, very, very long time. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely interesting to see uh, non-rover exploration missions. You mentioned the helicopter drone. We talked about a, a NASA um, a discovery mission fund for a nuclear-powered uh, I think it was a quadcopter or a hexacopter of uh, things that get more elaborate, let you cover more uh, ground space and airspace. Because as you mentioned, the Curiosity manages about 40 meters a day. Uh, and when you can have something that can fly a 40 meters in a minute or an hour, you can suddenly cover a much wider envelope. Uh, so it's definitely interesting to see... Uh, 
what new transportation mechanisms uh, NASA ends up using going forward. Yeah, and I think in the past, you know, we've we've seen designs and concepts for all sorts of stuff, and helicopters, rovers, um, things like balloons that can work in some of these atmospheric planets. Um, all Europa sorts of squid. squid. Yeah. <laughs> um, all sorts of interesting stuff. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And, you know, even at JPL, we do a lot of research uh, in that sort of stuff, just you know, navigating challenging terrains, improving autonomy, um, things like that to enable some of these these different capabilities in the future. So those are innovative uh, ideas that might be too novel to actually implement, um, but have good core elements of them. I, I assume there's like a, a process where engineers and scientists get together and you know, okay, that doesn't work, but this part of it does, and those ideas flow down into reality. Um, I don't know how that works, though. The biggest thing about, you know, whether or not we want to send something to space is reliability, just because it's so expensive um, to be doing this, and we're accountable to taxpayers and stuff, so, um, you know, it needs to work. And so, you know, there's some really awesome ideas out there, and just proving that it's going to work uh, can be a challenging and one of the biggest challenges is just dealing with the space environment. So, you know, you've probably heard people say that it's hard to get something into space if you haven't already gotten something similar into space before. Um, it's, it's the challenging paradigm of the industry. Uh, but really, I think that's kind of why the um, some of the research and technology ideas don't always make it that quickly into, uh, you know, a flight project. is just working out all the kinks and making sure that it's going to be robust and be able to handle the space environment and not, you know, end up being, I don't want to say a waste of money because we'll always learn something from it, but not performing its objectives. I do have one, one question um, that I think might be a good thing to end on is that, and that's what is one or uh, the primary or one of the main misconceptions that people might have about uh, collecting samples uh, or operating a rover? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think in general operations is a little bit poorly understood. Um, even going into operations, like it wasn't something that had college courses that covered in detail or anything. Uh, and just how much manpower it is. I think that a lot of people think that it kind of does everything for itself or it's as simple as saying, you know, go over there, sample this and that's it. Um, but it's really a lot of detailed, uh, engineering work and a lot of input from the science team every day to make these things do what they can do and make sure that we get the results that we want from them. Um, but, you know, that's all been part of an amazing process. And ultimately, it kind of feels like we're all on a road trip together some days. Um, you know, you get in in the morning and the science team is just thrilled with these amazing images they got from the day before and wants to talk to you about all these different features that they saw and you know, we do our best to kind of share that uh, and put out releases all the time of, you know, interesting things that we're seeing. And so it's been a lot of fun working in operations. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to feel like the day-to-day -day kind of is, you know, it's a desk job or whatever, but then you take a step back and, you know, talk to the science community about things that they're excited about and everything. Uh, and it does sort of just feel like we're all on this, this trip exploring Mars together. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. So to close this out, uh, well, first, I want to say thank you very much for talking with us. And where can our listeners go to find more about MSL and Mars 2020 and to follow the work that you and your team are doing uh, roving around the red planet? I definitely recommend uh, keeping an eye on mars.jpl.nasa.gov. Uh, that's JPL's um, spot for all of its Martian missions. And there's always new releases out on there of different stories, on, probably on a weekly basis. Uh, we have a pretty active media team that's you know, anything from recent results from our flight projects to images of assembly of the Mars rover, uh, all sorts of different content. Um, so definitely, you know, keep an eye on that. There's a lot of good stuff there. Awesome. We've been speaking with Doug Klein, who's a sampling systems engineer at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. Thanks a lot, Doug. Thanks for having me. You can find more information about the topics we discussed in this episode, past episodes, and everything in between at blog.specscast.com. For more podcasts like this one, you can check out our past episodes and subscribe to future ones at iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. While you're there, we'd appreciate it if you give us a review. Let us know how we're doing. 
and help us make a better show. You can keep the conversation going by sending us an email to specscast at gmail.com or reaching out to us on Twitter at RIT Specs. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Oh, this is so cool. I love JPL. Every, everyone we speak to at JPL just like comes on the show and blows my mind every time. <laughs>